Hello, we are here with Bishop Designate James Connolly, who will be installed in the Lincoln Diocese on November 20th. And uh, Bishop, I wanted to ask you about uh, a few things. First, you, you did a recent trip to the on the El Camino, didn't you? Can you, with some other bishops? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yes, I did uh, the last portion, the last 100 miles of the Camino to Santiago de Compostela, the ancient pilgrimage route to the tomb of St. James, uh, which is was my patron saint, along with um, two other bishops and two priests, Bishop Jim Wall, uh, also whose patron is St. James, uh, from Gallup, and Archbishop Paul Coakley, uh, longtime friend uh, from our high school days, uh, my closest friend, um, the Archbishop of Oklahoma City. Um, and then two priests, Father Jerry Baker from Owensboro and Father Don Klein from Phoenix. And I wanted to ask you today about uh, your your story of coming to your conversion to Catholicism and, and the priesthood and now as uh, a bishop. Can you tell us about a little bit about your upbringing? Because you were not Catholic, right? You had a conversion in college. Sure, yes. I was raised Presbyterian, only nominally really didn't um, practice my Presbyterian faith. Um, so I was, I was really, I didn't have much religious formation at all growing up. I um, was always considered myself a Christian, but probably more leaning towards agnosticism, you know, just not really knowing if we could know God or, or believe in God. Um, but never was, never was an atheist and never denied God's existence. But when I came to the University of Kansas as a freshman, along with Archbishop Coakley and many others, uh, I was introduced to a great books program, uh, a classical liberal arts program at the University of Kansas for freshmen and sophomores called the Integrated Humanities Program. And what year was that? That was in 1973. And you were from Kansas, raised on a farm? No, I was actually raised in Kansas City, a suburb of uh, metropolitan Kansas City. After I graduated from college, I, I farmed for a couple of years with some friends out in western Kansas. So we, uh, we, uh, this program, which really flourished at the University of Kansas uh, in the 1970s and, and 1980s, uh, was taught by three professors, three full professors at the University of Kansas. One, uh, two were English professors, and one was a classics professor. And the program uh, was an integrated program. So it wasn't just uh, a, a great books program where we read great literature, which we did, but we also um, memorized poetry. We learned the constellations of the stars and the mythology behind it because we were reading the Greek authors. The first year was all pagan authors. We read uh, the Greeks first semester and the Romans second semester. Can you tell us about the great books, like that program, who started it, what's it consist of? Well, it was started by these three professors. Uh, Dennis Quinn was the director, and he had been at the University of Kansas for a number of years. And John Sr., who... Um, became, eventually was my godfather, and Frank Nellick, uh, who were they, were, they were all tenured professors at the University of Kansas, and uh, they started this program primarily because they were 
Well, this wasn't connected to the Adler great books, or does it come from that? Well, it was influenced. They were, in fact, uh, Mortimer Adler came and was a guest lecturer uh, while I was uh, an undergraduate. So the the program at the University of Chicago that Adler was involved in, and also the great books program at Annapolis, uh, the uh, St. John's, uh, had an influence uh, on these professors, and they wanted to um, create a program because they realized that a lot of freshmen and undergraduates coming up to the university, especially in the 70s, but it's probably true even today, have not had the benefit of, of this great literary tradition that was so much part of education in Western culture. And they were um, frustrated because what we should have learned in high school and junior high, we, we, had a, we didn't have a clue. So they always said, well, this is a remedial program. We're, we're, we're just giving you what you should have known before you came up to the university. And so we read the basics. We read the Iliad and the Odyssey, Plato. We read uh, the Greek tragedy plays. We read Caesar's Gallic Wars, the Aeneid, Ovid, some of these classics of Greek and Roman literature um, that in the past um, high school kids read. And why, were we, why did you take the program? What attracted you to it? I remember the brochure um, in my senior year in high school. And, again, this was the 1970s, so, you know, we all had long hair and we were all just sort of, uh, you know, right after the Vietnam War was just coming to an end and uh, Watergate. And um, they had a picture on the brochure of a kid standing in a wheat field, barefoot, long hair, looking up at the stars, and you could see the Big Dipper. And the motto above his head was Nascantur in Admiratione, which is a Latin axiom which translates, uh, let them be born in wonder. And the professors, the goal of the program was to get us to look up at the stars and just to wonder about the perennial questions. Is there truth, goodness, beauty? Is there God? Is there life after death? Those questions that philosophers and theologians have been asking for centuries and um, that, that students naturally ask. And, um, and, it, and they also, in the brochure, said that, you know, the, the, the method, the, the pedagogy of this program is education by the muses. And instead of you know, appealing primarily to the intellect, they wanted to appeal to the imagination and the heart. So this is why we had stargazing and, and poetry and uh, and the arts, and that attracted me. Um, plus the fact that uh, by taking this program, um, ironically, they were able to start this program from an endowment uh, for the National Endowment for the Humanities, and uh, they called it an experiment in tradition. And this program satisfied all of your English, speech, Western Civ requirements. So the other thing that attracted me was this. I could knock out all these, you know, 101 courses with this integrated program. And uh, so I had kind of a practical motive as well. But, um, but it was, I think, the, the attraction, the beauty, the romance of this program that, that drew me. But uh, at the time, though, it seemed my impression is that everybody at that time was moving from a more traditional, what our parents, grandparents may have studied, to something different. But 
you seem like we're going back to classics. It, it just seems like a very inopportune for time for a classics program in that culture in the 70s. But that it was very popular, though, wasn't it? Oh, it was wildly popular in, in um, you know, sort of like back to the future in a certain sense because they call it an experiment in tradition. It was novel in the sense that they these professors who, who, as I mentioned, were all tenured and who were kind of steeped in, in, in modern academia, realized that something was wrong. And um, they despised sort of the scientific approach to education. Um, in fact, we didn't, they didn't even want to have tests. You know, and of course, we liked that idea. So they had oral exams. Um, and so there were many aspects, many parts of this program which were very uh, innovative. And in other words, it wasn't just uh, you know going back to something. It was it was taking the best of our tradition and trying to uh, present it in a very new way, modern way. And um, and it and it was just uh, avant garde enough that it was something that that seemed new and different. And um, the, 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 the administration and the, the, the university saw it as sort of one of these new programs, which was the irony of it, really, because it wasn't anything new, but it was, it was kind of a new approach to the classics. Would you all study art and music as well? We didn't so much study art. We studied art as an appreciation of art. Um, but it, we didn't really have any any hands-on uh, learning of, of art per se, other than the fact that we were all taught how to write with calligraphy, uh, to, to use uh, the old Osmoroid pen, and to learn uh, beautiful script penmanship. That was one of the requirements. So in that sense, we did have... But we had we had a great uh, an appreciation for for art, architecture, um, sculpture. Um, we did have uh, uh, in the third semester we had contact with that, and then also music was very important because every there were two lectures each week uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays for an hour and a half. But every lecture began with a song, um, and we would. Memorize along with the poetry we were memorizing, we'd memorize these great songs, usually English ballads or American folk songs, Stephen Foster, um, Robert Burns, and, and we would um, memorize these, 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 these songs so that we had a repertoire of music in our, in our hearts and in our imagination, which we would then sing outside of the classroom. So that, in that sense, we, we, we were educated in the, in the arts. Would they play a record, or would a band come in and do this? Or no, this was very clever. What usually happened was, it was an uh, an upper classman who was a female and usually very attractive, and she would come out and she would have a guitar or have somebody with her who played the guitar, and she would, you know, we were freshmen and sophomores. She would teach us to sing. Of course, you know, had the rapt attention of all the students. But it was all live. It was all live music. But uh, it seems like it's not the same origin or style as some, what you were reading if it was a more modern music, though, right? Right. But they realized that there are great English, because the second year 
we really concentrated, uh, especially towards the, the, the end, the fourth semester, on great English literature. And so these, these songs that we were learning were part of the great repertoire of English poems and ballads and songs, and also American songs. So, so and we ended up, actually, the last book we read was The Oregon Trail uh, and the story of the early pioneers. So the heart of the program, then, is not studying like the classics just in themselves for themselves, but it's with these to get at these questions of the meaning of life and meaning of love, maybe truth and goodness, beauty. Absolutely, that would be yeah. That would be because it was there. There were the professors didn't anticipate, nor did they. Um, plan from the beginning that students would convert to the Catholic faith. In fact, they weren't even all Catholic. They, one of the professors, Dr. Nellick, he converted to the Catholic Church along the way in the program. He kind of got caught up into it as well. And so this connection with the Catholic Church sort of came about organically um, because once students began asking those questions, those big questions, uh, and wanting to know the meaning of life and um, and the meaning of, of supernatural life, the Catholic Church just began to loom large because it had such a tremendous influence on Western literature, poetry, art, music, philosophy, architecture. And so you couldn't avoid this thing called the Catholic Church, but the professors never taught theology. We never did have any classes about the teachings of the Catholic Church. In fact, I remember if students got interested, like I did at some point, uh, in the Catholic Church, the professors would say, well, you'll have to go see the priest about if you're interested in the Catholic Church, you'll have to go down to the parish. At the time, there wasn't a student center at the university. There is now St. Lawrence Center, a huge student Catholic campus center. But at the time, it was the local parish priest. Well, so their motivation, they weren't secretly trying to evangelize. They, they were really trying to get at these philosophical questions, and were they hoping you guys would become Catholic even? or some of them? That's a good question. Maybe deep down some of them were, but certainly they were as surprised as we were when, and the university when students began to convert. Because uh, once that started, um, it... It, it kind of began to snowball. Uh, and so over the course of about 15 years where the program really flourished, there were hundreds and hundreds of conversions to the Catholic faith. It was sort of like a mini Oxford movement, and so much so that the university became concerned. And parents of converts began to complain to the university that these professors were trying to indoctrinate their children, teaching proselytizing in a state university. So there was actually hearings that took place, and the American Civil Liberties Union and the Jewish Defense League filed a lawsuit against the university with these accusations. So they had hearings, and the findings were that, no, there's no proselytizing. These professors had no premeditated secret motive to convert these students. This was just something that happened by the grace of God, and there was no evidence of proselytizing in the classroom. So they threw the case out. But it caused a lot of controversy. And what happened was 
it really did lead to the demise of the program because the university became uh, afraid and um, they, because it was so wildly popular, I mean, my, my class, there were 150 in my class uh, starting out as freshmen. And what they did was they removed the credits that it would satisfy as a freshman and sophomore. Um, no longer could you satisfy your English 101, your speech 101. You had to take it as an elective. Well, we called that kind of death by administration. They, they, you know, students obviously are very practical. They say, oh, I'm, I'm going to take, have to take this six-hour course on top of everything else i got to take. So the numbers began to decline. How come do you think this program had this effect and the programs at Chicago or Annapolis didn't have such a profound effect? That's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I think it was a combination, I can guess, um, just kind of reflect on the top of my, off the top of my head, I think it was the, the combination of the three professors. I mean, they were, they were all three, and they're very unique, very different from each other, but together they, there was a magic about their teaching. Um, and we were just enthralled, hanging on everything they said. Um, and so I think it was the fact that they were such good teachers and such effective teachers. I think the time had to do with it. The, the 1970s, students were looking for, for answers to these important questions. Um, and the grace of God. I mean, uh, I don't know of, uh, any other explanation. Let's talk about some of the teachers. I know uh, you had a they were quite characters, right? <laughs> one of them was a World War II fighter pilot, right? right. Which right. one was that? That was Frank Nellick, the one that I mentioned who converted along the way. He, is he the one in Wyoming now? No. All three are deceased. Um, the one you might be thinking of in Wyoming, uh, Bob Carlson, was a student, a graduate student, uh, who was one of the first students in the program, um, former dean of Wyoming Catholic College, in fact, Wyoming Catholic College, I was on the Founders Committee for Wyoming Catholic College, and all, all seven of us, uh, seven out of the nine, were all students in the Integrated Humanities Program. Mm -hmm. So we founded that college uh, on, the, on the ideas and, and the teaching and the kind of the method, the approach to the great books that we experienced at the University of Kansas in the Integrated Humanities Program. So there was a close connection. In fact, the Wyoming Catholic is, is sort of a, ch a child of, of the humanities program. But, yeah, the three professors were characters. Uh, Frank Nellick flew fighter pilot in World War II. He flew stunt planes with Eddie Rickenbacker, and he was a guy. He drove a red Corvette. He always wore dark sunglasses, chain smoke, camel, non-filter cigarettes in the classroom when, when you could and carried a switchblade. And, you know, this guy was, you know, everybody was in fear of him, but in awe of him at the same time. Dr. Senior was a Latin scholar, a classics professor, a, a mystic, and he's written several books, uh, The Death of Christian Culture, The Restoration of Christian Culture. Um, he was a poet, and so he, um, very different than, than Nellick. Nellick studied under T.S. Eliot, by the way, so he was a T.S. Eliot scholar. Quinn... Uh, the director of the program, who was another English professor, he was the administrator of the program. And so he was sort of the guy that kept the other two on task, you know, and, um, and kind of was the glue uh, for the three of them. 
And the way they would teach was unique because all three would sit up and it was in an auditorium, about 150 students, and they would – we weren't allowed to take notes, so we had to have our desk clear, and we weren't allowed to ask questions. And they basically had a conversation uh, between the, the three of them, which we were privy to, and we could listen along in, and we could, we could kind of follow the conversation they had amongst themselves. So that was a kind of a unique approach. How could you do you remember how that conversation would go? How it started? What were they t- talking about a certain topic or arguing, debating? Well, it seemed like they would begin each class by saying, uh, you know, as we were talking about last time, and they would launch right into it. And the lectures were always about the books we were reading, but they were free flowing, so they would get off on tangents. Um, and they would, even amongst themselves, they would sort of argue or they would challenge each other. And Quinn would sit in the middle, and Nellick and Senior on either side, and, and Quinn would always try to bring it back to the, 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 the book we were reading, whether it be Plato or the Aeneid or whatever. But um, they would talk about anything and everything, you know, whatever would come to mind. I asked them once, I said, do you prepare your lectures and they said, well, we get together about 15 minutes before class begins, and, and we say, well, what are we going to talk about today? And, and, and throw out an idea. So they, you know, they, didn't, they didn't have lesson plans. They didn't uh, have notes. Um, and we didn't have notes. So it was just a, a wonderful, almost like I said, magical experience of being brought into this wonderful conversation. So there are fields of expertise that Nellick studied English literature under T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And then John Sr., what, what, did, what was his degrees in? John Sr. is very interesting, convert as well. Quinn was the only cradle Catholic, but John Sr. was influenced by, um, as I mentioned, Mortimer Adler. But he went to, um, uh, went to Columbia University and studied under Mark Van Doren. Mark Van Doren taught at Columbia for years and years and years and influenced people like Thomas Merton. Um, and there was a, a, a great books revival in the 1930s and 40s at Columbia. Merton was involved in that. Senior went through the whole, if you've ever read Seven Story Mountain, The Life of Thomas Merton, it's, it's kind of mirrors seniors. I mean, Senior was involved in communism for a while and uh, and like that time period uh, under the same influences. Um, he ended up going to Cornell, and he taught. And then he um, moved west. He wanted to move west. And so he left New York and came out west and ended up in Wyoming as a cowboy. He wanted to be a cowboy and sort of just left academia, but then realized he couldn't make any money as a cowboy. And but they're like rugged individualists. How does a communist fit? The cow- <laughs> well, he kind of rejected that whole thing when he converted, and he just, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to go west and uh, ended up at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, and it was from the University of Wyoming in Laramie that he, that he came to the University of Kansas. Um, but those were his main influences. Um, and then Quinn... Quinn was a uh, an interesting Quinn's uh, area of expertise was John Donne in poetry, and the metaphysical poets, uh, and he wrote a book on wonder, um, and poetry. Um, so they all had different influences. 
How would John Sr. like not bring up God all the time? You know, especially a prayerful person. It seemed like he'd always be bringing it back to God, but he didn't. He didn't do that in class. No, I mean he he would bring up the subject of God or the divine um, if it comes up in the literature, like for instance Shakespeare. We read a couple of Shakespeare's plays, and Shakespeare talks about God all the time. Uh, we did read this, the Confessions of Saint Augustine. That was a pivotal book. Um, this, the, the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. So those books talk about God, you know, overtly. And um, so, in when we when we discussed that literature, um, you know, we would have discussions about God. So th- in that sense, there would be theological discussions and theological conversations. What the actual class? I remember you told me one time that they would almost kind of tease you guys a little bit, like <laughs> so you guys don't really know what's going on here. You don't know how important. What was yeah. that? What would they tell you? Well, there, there's a funny. Uh, every now and then, Nellick, the, the the fighter pilot, you know, who always dressed in black, and he'd stop and he'd he sometimes even wear these sunglasses in class, and he'd put the sunglasses down and he'd look at it and he says, "Do you guys even understand what we're talking about?" John, John, I don't think they get it. I don't think they understand. Do you guys really understand this stuff? You know, and of course we'd just sit there and we'd nod our head. Even if we didn't, we'd say, yeah, of course we do. Um, but they would, they would uh, you know, so there was interaction uh, in a very wonderful way with the class, you know, with the, with the people who were in the class, the students. But it was... You know, we we couldn't enter in. We couldn't raise our hand and, and enter in and ask questions. But but we they would banter back and forth with us. Would they be loud or dramatic or funny at times? Or oh yeah, they would sometimes uh, stand up and uh, or they would they would uh, start laughing. All three of them would just start laughing, and we'd start laughing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they would get passionate about something. Um, so they, like I said, you know, they could. Nellick would be smoking cigarettes, you know, and flicking. I remember he used to flick the ashes in his boots. He had a pair of black boots that he wore, and he kind of flicked the ashes in his <laughs> boots. Because everybody would be watching that to see, you know, if the boots catch on fire or something. <laughs> now, what? Why did you become Catholic? And what was your personal? What was there a particular book idea that really caught you on fire? Well, I would say the book that probably had the biggest influence on me was the Confessions of St. Augustine, and that came the second year. And I, by that time, I was starting to ask myself, you know, what do I believe in? And, and if I believe in God, which I believe I did, where, what am I supposed to do? Am, am I, am I, am I supposed to, I'm supposed to worship him, and how am I supposed to worship him? So um, that book uh, really sort of got me thinking in a personal way, I need to find out. So I started going to churches. Uh, I went to the Methodist church for a while, and then I, I ended up at the uh, Episcopalian church, where a lot of the students would go, because there was another professor at the university who, Professor Dick Harp, who now is the chair of the English department at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and he he was a student um, kind of, he was like, a, if there ever was a fourth professor, he was the fourth one. But he taught in the English department, and he taught a course on supernatural fiction, which I took that my second year as an elective. And we read C.S. Lewis, and we read Chesterton, and we read some of these great English authors. And um, 
C.S. Lewis was an Episcopalian. Dr. Harp was Episcopalian, who has eventually become – he became Catholic. Um, uh, Professor Harp did. And so um, I started going to the Episcopal Church. And it was about that time that the fourth semester of our second year, my sophomore year, that I was introduced to John Henry Newman because we read selections of Newman's idea of a university about education and knowledge. And I fell in love with Newman, and I wanted to read more about Newman. And I had an, a, an assignment in another class to write an essay on a major British author after 1800, and I picked Newman and wrote a little paper on Newman. And that began this, this romance with Newman that goes to this very day. I chose Newman's uh, motto, Corad Coloquator, as my own Episcopal motto. And as I read Newman and read the whole history of the Oxford movement in 19th century England and his life, um, it all just became clear. Um, and his conversion from – and by that time I was already going to the Anglican Church, and so it was the perfect author to read – and um, as I read more and more of Newman, I said, I've got to check out the Catholic Church. And then once I started my, let's see, my fa the fall semester of my junior year, um, my third year, I started taking instruction classes with a couple friends because, as I said, waves and waves of com converts to the Catholic faith. And so I actually went with my roommate's girlfriend and another girl, and we took these courses uh, the instruction it was before the RCIA program uh, back in the 70s. And so Father Moriarty, the parish priest, God rest his soul, at St. John's in Lawrence, taught these courses every semester, instruction classes. And I started going to those. And within two or three weeks, I was, just, I was completely convinced I had to become Catholic. And then you went to France? Graduated, yeah, graduated uh, the following year with a degree in English literature. And um, a number, by that time, a number of the students from the humanities program had migrated to a French Benedictine monastery, um, Notre Dame de Foncambeau, which is part of the congregation of Solem. Partly because we had studied Latin during the course. That was another thing I didn't mention. Senior taught this Latin course where you could satisfy your foreign language requirement by taking Latin, two years of Latin. And so some older students wanted to find a place where Latin was still alive, and they discovered this monastery, Benedictine monastery in France, and um, where Latin Gregorian chant was still used. It was a young monastery, um, and they entered. Um, How many, roughly? Over the course of, again, about 15 years, there were nine who entered and stayed. There were probably twice that many or more that entered, but some left. I never entered, but I went over with a bunch of friends of mine and ended up staying there almost a year. And uh, of the group I was in, um, none of those, none of those, two, two, three of them entered. But then they th the three of them left. And so in my year, there, there weren't any that I can remember. Um, the year before, there were three that entered who are, who are part of the founding monks at Clear Creek in Oklahoma, Tulsa. How, how many? 
they're all together. They, when they, when in 1999, when they founded uh, their first daughter house in the United States in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they sent 12 monks. Um, eight were, no, nine were from either the United States or Canada, and eight of those nine were students in the Integrated Humanities Program who had entered and were monks for 25 years in France before they were sent over to the United States. So they were, they were all classmates of mine or you know, a, year, a couple years before, a couple years after me. And Archbishop Coakley, was he in, in this mix at any point? He was. Uh, he, now, he was born Catholic, um, like a lot of the students who were in the program. They were already Catholic. But as I mentioned, we basically grew up together. We were roommates all four years in college. And um, I, he went over to France. That He actually went over before I did um, for that year after we graduated. And um, he never entered, but he was very much influenced by the monks and uh, thought about, like we all did, thought about entering. But it was really through that ex- monastic experience where we really learned how to pray and learn the great Benedictine traditions um, that we discovered our vocation to the priesthood. And, and there were, uh, there's another priest, Father Jim Jackson, who was also a roommate of ours, convert, who is now in the fraternity of St. Peter, former rector of their seminary in, in Lincoln. Um, he was also in France that year with us. There were about nine of us that year in, in, in France. But was, I know you kind of told me humorously that you, had, you struggled kind of with the French culture a little bit when you were over there, that it didn't appeal to you. Can you talk about that experience? You went over there and worked on their farm and things, right? Correct. I, I fell in love with um, the life. Um, and when it came time to, th- to really ask my, the question, am I called to this life, um, to live you know, within these cloistered walls for the rest of my life, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't do that. I, 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 could, I, didn't, I, I knew that as much as I loved it and as much as I had a romantic attachment to it, that I just would go nuts, you know, living in a cloistered life. Um, and I, I love it. I love going back. It's great if you've got the vocation. Um, and the French ways were just, you know, I, I, you know, I'm American. You know, like they say, there's the right way and the wrong way and the French way. And uh, I was, you know, I was too American, I think, to, you know, maybe too possessive of my American ways to give a, to sacrifice that to become a monk. But you came back here and you went, worked on a friend's farm, right, for a little bit? Right. In fact, that experience of, of living uh, at the monastery and working on the farm there and living, you know, the rhythm of the rural life, I fell in love with that, and, and so when I came back, I, I wasn't really sure what I should do, and a friend of mine had just inherited his grandmother's farm and moved out to western Kansas and invited me to come and work on that farm, and um, so I said, this, this is great, and, and so I moved out there, and he had just married, and then another friend of ours who just got married um, also moved out there, who was from the Kansas City area, never lived on a farm, um, but he had a degree in he got a degree in agriculture and, and fruit science, so he wanted to start an orchard. And so we all lived out there. I was sort of the fifth wheel. These guys were married, and they were you know, starting to have families. And So I knew that I didn't want to be a bachelor farmer the rest of my life, and I um, met a girl and, who was also from a farm, and so I thought, this is it. You know, I'm supposed to get married and live the good life out in the country. And 
Then Pope John Paul II came to the United States for the first time. Messed everything, he, he messed everything up. We, we all piled in vans and drove up to Des Moines, Iowa. It was October 4th of 1979, the Feast of St. Francis, which is coming up. And uh, this new Polish pope, you know, which captured the imagination of the world, uh, we wanted to see him. And so we all went up there and, and went to this huge mass, 300,000 people. And as he's wont to do... At the end of the Mass, he made this appeal to the young men to consider a vocation to the priesthood. And I guess I had never really seriously considered anything but a monastic vocation as far as a religious vocation goes. And So that planted in my mind, well, maybe God's calling me to be a parish priest, a diocesan priest. Um, and it was during harvest in October, and I remember you know, working the harvest in long hours on a tractor, and just thinking the priesthood, the priesthood, maybe, you know, I want to be part of this new evangelization that this new pope is appealing to. You know, he, said, he would say, come and join me, and, you know, and, and um, you know, to be a priest. And, and that appeal, I, I can, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a John, John Paul II priest. I mean, that was, it, I can trace my vocation back to his appeal at that mass. And didn't he catch your eye at some point in the crowd or something? Yeah, there is a story. I, we there was a group of elderly people sitting in our area, and one couple with wheelchairs. And they asked us if behind them if we would wheel these people up. And I said sure because I knew that he'd have to stay up in front where the the ill were, and you know, got a great seat up there. And so I wheeled this gentleman up there and and stood there um, through the whole mass. And he came down um, and blessed the sick as he always did and as Pope Benedict does. And he came like within 20, 30 feet of me. And I swear that he looked at me, you know, and kind of with those eyes, those those blue eyes, and, and he kind of gave me a little wink. Um, now, maybe that was all in my imagination, but I just was, you know, I was mesmerized by that. Um, so, you know, that was something that I never will forget. And then you went on to study and join what diocese? I uh, ended up uh, studying for the Diocese of Wichita because the girl I was dating at the time was from Wichita, and I got to know her priest. And so when it came time to make application to the seminary, I went to this priest and um, ended up in in Wichita, which is in southeast Kansas. I never lived there before. And uh, went to St. Pius X Seminary for philosophy in early Kentucky and then went on to Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland for theology and was ordained for the Diocese of Wichita in 1985. And then you were made Auxiliary Bishop when? Uh, in 2008, April 10th of 2008, um, and served, uh, has have served, continue to serve as Auxiliary Bishop, first under Archbishop Chapu, um, until he was appointed to Philadelphia, and then most recently under Archbishop um, Sam Aquila, who is an old friend from graduate school in Rome, um, and then on, uh, what was it, the 14th of September, just a couple weeks ago, um, yeah, two weeks ago, yesterday, I was appointed the ninth Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska. And have you met uh, Pope Benedict uh, personally? When I worked in Rome at the Congregation for Bishops, um, and he was the prefect for the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, we would oftentimes have what they call 
interdicasterial meetings, and so he would conduct them, or our prefect would conduct them. And at that time, I had a chance to meet him and uh, get to know him. And then uh, some of the friend, some of the priests I lived with in Rome worked in the congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, and so I, you know, I've known him uh, in that capacity uh, since I started in 1996. And your impressions of him? Well, he's wonderful. He's he's. I pray every day for a long for his health and for a long life. He's a gift to the church. When we look at the pontificate of John Paul II, uh, 27 years, which was so significant uh, for our time, and we think about who could possibly follow someone like that, um, in my mind there was only one choice, and he is the perfect person to follow because he's a giant in his own right, intellectually and, and as a as a bishop and as a priest, and, um, and but at the same time, he 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 knew the mind of John Paul II, so he could continue the great work of John Paul II, which was the great work of the Second Vatican Council, being also um, a participant in the Second Vatican Council, um, which we celebrate the 50th anniversary coming up next month, the beginning of it of the council. Uh, it was a, a perfect um, successor to John Paul II to continue this great work um, of the um, new evangelization. Um, and so um, he, he's, he's a gift to the church. And uh, is there some of his teachings that you appreciate? I know I've, his scriptural teachings on the scripture, I think, are so profound and really seems to be his gift. Is there something like that for you that... Well, certainly, yeah. His his um, the books and the third volume is supposed to come out this this winter, before Christmas. Yeah, his homilies, um, his reflections and meditations. But I think maybe something that I think may maybe most enduring is I think he's really put his finger on the major error of our era, and that is relativism when he speaks about the dictatorship of relativism because one of the things, getting back to my experience uh, as an undergraduate, I'd say that probably the, the principal idea that the professors tried to get across to us was the idea of truth, objective truth, you know, that there is such a thing as truth. It can be known and possessed by the human person and that everything is not relative, uh, there is there is there is truth and there is error, um, and that seems to be in our own day. It's not so much a crisis of faith; it's a crisis of reason. We, we we've lost the capacity to understand and accept objective truth, both in the moral realm and in the theological realm. That this dictatorship of relativism, that no one knows the truth. Who's to say? To each his own. Everybody is true. Everyone is right. You know, there's no right and wrong. To me, that philosophical error, and it's more of a philosophical error, um, it plagues us. We, we, we can't move forward if we don't admit that there is such a thing as objective truth. And it, it seems like, too, we've even lost the ability to converse on you know, certain fundamental concepts. You know, people, maybe that is the most fundamental one, just that truth is objective. But it, it's almost like we have trouble finding words to 
talk to people about this sometimes. It, uh, I kind of feel that sometimes as a, you know, in preaching. It's true. It's, 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 it's almost like we've lost the language. You know, we're speaking a foreign language, and, and we, 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 you know, it's hard to, to even converse about it because it's like we're talking in two different languages. Well, we'll uh, one last question. We'll end on a positive note. What is a, a sign of light or hope that you see happening in the church today or a movement of the Spirit? Good question. I have uh, great hope really, uh, in Jesus Christ, of course, you know, who is, uh, who's already won the victory. And Our Lady, uh, who is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. She gives us that joy and that hope, um, ultimately in eternal life, which is really what we're oriented toward. But um, in, in the world today, I see great hope also in our young people, um, in the Archdiocese of Denver, have the great have had the great uh, privilege of being involved in Focus, which is was founded in Denver by Curtis Martin Fellowship of University, Catholic University Students. Um, the Augustine Institute. I serve on the board of the Augustine Institute, which is a theological institute, graduate program in theology, which is booming. I mean, they're 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 growing so fast. We just moved into a new facility both the online program but also the residential program. So there's a great thirst among young people for the faith and a great energy to want to know the faith and study the faith and then to evangelize. So those are just two examples of great signs of hope. Um, I've spent most of my priesthood working with college students and because perhaps so much happened in my life as a college student, I see that particular age uh, as really a hopeful sign, and the young people are looking now more than ever for real answers to these questions. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Father Mark. Appreciate it. God bless. All right, All right good. That was great. Thank you.